You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Good morning. It's a joy to be back with you this morning. Thank you to those of you who are able to come and did come uh, yesterday for our four sessions. Your brains are probably still recovering, I understand. Uh, A few of you said as much to me. It's a great Great joy to open the Word of God with you this morning. Before we do, though, uh, I want to thank again Pastor Jason, uh, and also Pastor Jason, and also Pastor Aaron, and uh, just say how thankful I am to those men and to the elders of the church. Uh, I did not get to meet all of the elders in being here, but I know there are a number of you, of course, out there as well, and I thank you very much, and I thank you for standing on the Word of God, and I thank you for the opportunity to uh, take a stand on momentous doctrines in this time. Uh, for the glory of Christ. Some years ago, the musician Michael Card told a heartbreaking story. Michael Card grew up in the home of a physician, and he loved his father very much. He was a good father in many respects. But his father was a doctor and had to perform complex acts of surgery uh, that would take hours and hours uh, to do. And so when his father would return after a long day, Michael Card would try to connect with his father, his father feeling no doubt the weight of having lives hanging in the balance before him, would go to his study and would sometimes need to shut the door and even lock the door, I assume, in order to to get his wits back about him in being home from a hard day's work. Michael Card has told the story and even has done an album about how in an attempt to connect with his father, he would slide pictures under the door to his dad, attempting by any means to connect with his father. When I heard that story, it resonated deeply with me and will with many of you because we all naturally want a father who loves us. We all so deeply desire safety, security, blessing, and belonging. But in a world that is fallen and shot through with sin, the reality is this. Finding such security, safety, blessing, and belonging is very hard to find for many of us. Our passage this morning covers how we may finally and lastingly come home, and we may find what we were made for. And it is all through the blood of Christ. If you would turn with me or open up with me to Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. In this passage to the Ephesian Christians, the Apostle Paul spells out how explosively unitive the work of Christ is. Is And we are going to celebrate that unitive work, that uniting work this morning. There are three movements in this passage, Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. First, in verses 11 and 12, we see where you Gentiles are, according to Paul. And so my first point is this, the peoples of earth are alienated. Second, in verses 13 to 18, we'll see what Christ has done. And my point there is that the two peoples are united in Christ. And thirdly, and finally, in verses 19 to 22, we see what effect this has. And my point there is that the church is the household of God. Let's now examine these three glorious truths from the apostolic quill to the Ephesian Christians. Our first truth this morning, the peoples of earth are alienated. Look with me at verse 11, if you would. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians who were not Jewish by background. He points to the stark division between the Gentiles and the Jews. The Gentiles were uncircumcised. They had not gone through this physical process, the males among them, that is. And they were separated from Christ, 
alienated from Israel, he says, strangers to the grace of God, mediated through the covenants with creation, Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, all in verse 12. The Gentiles and their condition is for many of us our natural condition. In fact, if you want to extrapolate the Gentilic condition, being strangers from God, is the natural state of every person. Though humanity likes to think that we know God naturally and instinctually, none of us are born naturally into the family of God. Outside of God's supernatural, literally above nature, grace, we are all, verse 12, separated from Christ. John Stott has captured the point well. Long before Marx, the Bible spoke of human alienation. It describes two other and even more radical alienations than the economic and political that Marx captured. One is alienation from God our Creator, Stott says, and the other alienation from one another, our fellow creatures. So the point, drafting off of Stott, is that no one is a natural-born participant in the covenants of promise, but the Gentiles could not even know of the covenants in many respects. Now, this term, covenants of promise, in verse 12, reminds us of the entire narratival sweep of Scripture. Sin brought death, but the covenants came with the promise of life, spiritual life unto everlasting life. Outside of the covenants, however, the human and gentilic condition is stark indeed. There is, I repeat myself, no hope, verse 12, in our natural state. Now, sometimes Christians today will feel a little bit uneasy about saying such stark statements to unbelievers. Surely, unbelievers around us have, I don't know, a little hope. Uh, I mean, people out there are trying to live life as best they know how, and we don't want people to be, you know, completely hopeless. It's not as if they have nothing worth living for, but the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, tells us starkly and directly in propositional speech, there is no hope, verse 12, in our natural state. So friends, let me press in just for a moment. If you are here this morning and you're a visitor, a guest, I'm so thankful you've come. But like all of us who are Christians, in your natural state, you have no hope. None. It's not that you have a little hope and Christians have a lot of hope. It's that outside of the grace of God that saves sinners like you and sinners like us, we have no hope in our natural state. And not just that, not just vertically, but we also divide from one another. We divide and build walls between ourselves. Stop again. Men build walls of partition and division like the terrible Berlin Wall or erect invisible curtains of iron or bamboo or construct barriers of race, color, caste, tribe, or class. Divisiveness is a constant characteristic of every community without Christ. End quote. What is the point? The point is that our vertical alienation from God, our hopelessness, vertically, not knowing the Lord naturally, manifests horizontally such that it is not just that we don't know God in our natural state, all of us. It is that now our indwelling sin creeps into all our relationships, all facets of our life in some form. And so it comes naturally to us to divide, to separate, and to hate. Other texts in the Scripture will teach us that we are haters of God and one another, for example. Very simple. We hate God naturally, and also, flowing from that, we hate one another. We are without hope, and we are without God, verse 12. It is important that we be reminded of this today. We are encouraged in our time, even as gospel-loving believers to in different ways look a great deal to the world for encouragement and help and wisdom. There's been a backlash in particular among my generation, younger Christians, people younger than me 
in addition, uh, such that we don't want to be seen as starkly against the world. And so we make a really strong effort to show that we're reasonable and we're very much like our unbelieving neighbors, and we think much the same, and we have many of the same values and hopes and ideals, and we even learn a ton from the world, and there's a a lively conversation to have over God's common grace. We've been trying to have some of it this weekend. Just note this, though. To be outside of God is to be without hope in the world. We are not fundamentally, as believers, oriented to the world. We are fundamentally, as believers, oriented to God. The people around us who act and live and move in unbelief are not just emotionally hopeless, like they woke up and they're having a bad day or a bad month or America's having a pretty rough 2020. I think we can acknowledge we are. Nonetheless, this is not simply an emotional state. Outside of Christ, we are objectively hopeless. It is factual. It is true. You understand? This isn't just a feeling in your heart that you can take a pill for or go to therapy for and overcome this. We are without God in our natural state. We are hopeless. We can't do anything in ourselves to change this state. We don't need to be affirmed as amazing and wonderful and not needing to change. We don't simply need to be accepted by our peer group or our father and mother, important as that is. We don't just need more stable emotions, as surely we all do. We have a God deficit. We do not know God in our sinful condition. We don't know God. And people around us don't know God. And that is their chief problem. That is the problem from which all other problems flow. So if you are here, again, even if you've been raised in a Christian home, if you're a young person, young man or young woman, for example, as we so beautifully saw just a few moments ago, no one is a natural-born member of the family of Christ. All of us are without hope and without God. Paul is laying the groundwork in this section for the next one. And he's saying, whatever you do, don't look to the Gentiles for hope for solutions, for the antidote to what ails us. The Gentile philosophers, the Gentile thinkers, the Gentile leaders and activists, they don't have the solution to what ails the Gentilic people in Ephesus. They don't have the solution for any people. Only those who have God find hope and all that hope yields. And this leads to our second glorious truth from Ephesians 2 this morning. The two peoples, Jew and Gentile, are united in Christ. Verses 13 to 18. Look with me. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. As we have pointed out in our natural state, Paul says in verse 13, the Gentiles are far off from God, but through faith in Jesus Christ, the Gentiles may draw near to God. Note the expressly Christ-centered answer that Paul gives to our problem, our hopeless condition that I was just outlining. It is the blood of Christ. It is not simply Christ. It is Christ. But it is is something very specific. Exposition and exegesis matters tremendously, doesn't it? It's the blood of Christ. A lot of people want to talk about Jesus. 
People want to watch videos about Jesus. They want to watch the History Channel special about Jesus in just a few months uh, when Easter comes around, Christmas comes around. People don't necessarily want to talk and think, though, about the blood of Jesus. In fact, it's becoming more and more out of fashion, not simply in the world, of course, but even in evangelical circles to talk about the blood of Christ. But the blood of Christ is the solution humanity needs for our alienation, our estrangement, our anger, our hatred, and our hopelessness. The blood of Christ washes us clean. It washes us clean. It functions as the very peace, verse 14, between God and man and between man and man. Look at how effectual, how powerful the blood of Christ is in verse 14. It makes Jew and Gentile one. It breaks down to ashes the dividing wall of hostility. You think you feel hostility now. You think you see hostility out there in our context, in our society. You do. It's always been around, though, since the fall in Paul's day in the first century. It's tremendous hostility between Jew and Gentile. This isn't new. This isn't a new condition. It takes new forms, but humanity is tremendously hostile to humanity. The blood of Christ breaks all that down. This is accomplished, thirdly, by Christ, the atoning sacrifice, who in his flesh, fully God, fully man, truly God, truly man, brings the old covenant law to perfect fulfillment. Verse 14. The law, in fact, old covenant law, is so perfectly met and fulfilled and consummated in Jesus Christ that Paul can use the language of it being abolished, katargesos in the Greek, abolished, made inoperative. I remember being so confused as a young Christian over the old covenant law, the Old Testament law. And there's, there are lively debates among Christian scholars and some of the finer points of this doctrinal area, so let that be said. And yet here in Ephesians 2, the Apostle Paul uses a very strong word to describe the law after the blood of Christ. He says it is inoperative in believers' lives. He says it is abolished. What an incredible reality this is. All Old Covenant law, in my understanding, fulfilled. None of the Old Testament law holding on to us effectively. None of us being responsible for obeying the New Testament, yes, but then certain parts of the Old Testament where we're not obeying other parts. Very, very confusing. I believe Paul is clarifying this very confusing matter for us, and he is saying Christ has perfectly consummatively fulfilled the Old Testament or Old Covenant law. Therefore, there is not one form of Christianity for the Gentiles and one form of Christianity for believing Jews. There is just Christianity. And it is all founded in the blood of Christ, such that one new man, verse 15, now exists. Before, there was Jew and Gentile. Before, there was division. Before there was hostility. Now there is, by the blood of Jesus, one new man. There's the church. There are the people of God. There are not two groups any longer in terms of divided identity. Now, this does not mean that Jewish identity means nothing, as if it has ceased to exist. We think of Romans 9 through 11, for example. It does mean that Christian identity is everything, it is our primary identity. Said more simply, it is who we are. We are a Christian with no modifier, with no extra noun. We are a Christian. This is who we are. Before, we were many things. We were divided. We were separated. We were alienated. And now, in Christ, all we are is a Christian. Nothing of our own devices obtains in terms of our primary identity any longer. It's all fallen away. None of our sexual proclivities or natural temptation patterns obtains any longer to our primary 
identity. None of our class, none of our background, none of our skin color is our primary identity. We are simply Christians. And it feels downright fundamentalistic or something like this to say such things in 2020, even in evangelical circles. And yet, friends, this is just simple biblical truth. Nothing comes above Christ for us, but not just that. Nothing comes alongside of Christ. It's not that we aren't who God made us to be. We are, male, female, for example, but it's that nothing comes above Christ for us. Nothing really is even a distant second in that sense. It's not that our life doesn't matter. It's just that Christ matters so much. Because of Jesus, there is peace between Jew and Gentile, moving into verse 15. Note that peace is not offered to us as an option. Do you notice how intrusive and almost rude this announcement of blood washing is by Paul? Do you, do you understand just how much God is sovereignly behind the work of salvation? Do you understand how none of us were consulted about our thoughts on the matter? There was no workshop with a whiteboard behind us where we contributed our thoughts to covenantal cleansing. None of that happened for any of us. All of this has been done. All of this was done, in our case, 2020, roughly 2,000 years ago. We had nothing to do with it. We didn't commission Jesus. We didn't ask him to come. We didn't call upon the Father 2,000 years ago for him to come. God did this. God did it. Peace is in Christ and Christ alone. Peace isn't merely an option. Peace is what God gives. It is what God gives so that we have peace first with God, and it is what God gives so that we have peace with fellow believers. There is no true and lasting peace outside of Christ. Outside of Christ, verse 16, hostility, ekthron in the Greek, persists. We see hostility everywhere, but not just out there. We're not, we're not structuralists first and foremost as believers. We know that hostility is in here. We know in a very real sense that we are our foremost problem in life, not someone else. We do not fundamentally as believers, therefore, have a victim mentality. Terrible things may have happened in our past. Terrible things may have been done to us. Regardless, we are not victims. The Scripture teaches us that fundamentally all of us are criminals, complicit in Adam's fall. That's a strong word. That's an especially strong word in a culture that tells us that no one can tell us who we are. No one can form our identity. We form our own identity. We follow our own heart, don't we? We've been told that by Disney long before theologians got there. But in the words of wise writers here, even in these parts, we should not follow our heart, should we? When we feel hostility, when we have that sin, that anger, that bitterness, that desire to get, get vengeance, I don't even necessarily mean in some you know, cold-blooded, premeditated kind. I mean just in the, in the kitchen when somebody says a sharp word to you in the morning because everybody's a little bit grumpy. Hostility wells up, doesn't it? When was the last time you said in your accountability group, among your friends, catching up with church members, it's just been really hard for me to be hostile recently. <laughs> it's just been tough. I want to be angry. I want to get revenge. I just have no desire for it. I don't know what's wrong with me. My spouse, they say something to me that's eh, a little less than ideal, and I just can't find the resources in me to get frustrated. I don't know what's wrong. Pray for me. No, we don't have that problem, do we? I don't have that problem, and I'm guessing you don't have that problem. Whatever relational context that obtains, 
for you. No, outside of Christ, hostility comes naturally. But in Christ, verse 16, we are reconciled to God. This reconciliation is not first and foremost from us. It is not something we have done. It's not even something here in Ephesians 2 that we're really called to do. There are other passages that will trace out that theme. This passage in Ephesians 2 portrays reconciliation between God and between man as something God has done. It's done. It's not left to us. It's not in our hands even. And this reconciliation does not come in positive feelings about Jesus. This reconciliation is not affected by respecting Jesus. Reconciliation does not flow from merely trying to do what Jesus did. Reconciliation is not found in wanting things from Jesus, contra the prosperity gospel. Reconciliation is not first ordered to the world as if our first problem is hostility here. That's a problem. But our first problem is hostility with God on our part. So this reconciliation, continuing this theme, comes, verse 16, through the cross. The wrath of God is propitiated, poured out, and satisfied at the cross. The cross is so powerful that it kills the hostility, verse 16, and reconciles Jew to God and Gentile to God and the two peoples to one another. John Chrysostom has captured this well. He did not say that he dissolved it. He did not say that he put an end to it. But he used the much more forceful expression. He killed. This shows, Chrysostom says, that the enmity need never rise again. How then does enmity, hostility between peoples, rise again from our own wickedness? So long as we remain in the body of Christ, so long as we are one with him, it does not rise again, but lies dead. I think even Reformed Christians and gospel-centered Christians in many cases do not have a functionally strong enough doctrine of the blood of Christ. I think Chrysostom is right, drafting off of Paul. The hostility, guys, has not been dealt with. It hasn't been workshopped. It hasn't been addressed. Hostility between man and God has been apoctenas, killed. When we are in a non-propositional, post-truth culture like ours where everybody endlessly, excessively qualifies their statements and is terrified of being heard without nuance, terrified, when you come to the New Testament, when you come to the Bible, it can shock you, can't it? Because there's such strong and direct language. There's such, used to be called, masculine speech. And an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ will say something straightforwardly like, hostility has been murdered. And it sounds strong. But this is spirit-wrought language. There's nothing left to be done. There's no more hostility between the Christian and God. Hostility has objectively ceased. It ceased in the first century, and it has ceased in the 21st. It is altogether undone by the crosswork of the king. So says Charles Hodge. When Christ is said to reconcile people to God, it means that he propitiated, satisfied God, satisfied the demands of his justice, and rendered it possible that he might be just and yet justify the ungodly, end quote. Friends, with your salvation, there's nothing left to be done in terms of atoning because Christ has done it all. He's done it all. There's no part of you that you have to save. So now there is peace. Now there is peace between you and God. And now, verse 17, there is peace between the far off and the near, moving from the vertical to the horizontal. 
as John Piper has said well, vertical and horizontal reconciliation happen together and inseparably through faith in Christ. So now we study more of the horizontal dimension. Jesus is the only true hope of those who desire unity of any kind in the world. People all around us are desperate for unity, and well, they should be. We talked in our sessions this weekend about how in the image of God, we have anthropological unity, human unity at a basic level, and that is true. But the sad reality is that all image bearers have fallen, and so we need more than the image of God. Do you know what we need? We need the image of Christ. We need the second Adam. We need a greater Adam. We need one who will not bring division between us because of his sin, but will bring peace because of his righteousness, his perfect righteousness. There's no family like the family of God in human history. There's no movement that crosses boundaries like the Christian mission. Christianity cannot be painted into a corner as the exclusive faith of one ethnicity or region. Christianity is a global faith. It has gone global. It is a movement united by repentant belief in the atoning death and vicarious resurrection of Christ. Yet, it is a movement almost impossibly diverse in terms of its reach, scope, and ultimate ingathering of people from every tribe and tongue. This is the unity that everybody is looking for. This is the belonging that everyone naturally seeks but cannot find. It's here. It's the church. There's not a second plan of God. There's not something cultural and societal that we must do to improve upon the church. The church is God's plan for unity and diversity. We who are a diverse people have gospel unity. One commentator notes that the word one is repeated in this passage in verses 14, 15, 16, and 18. The Apostle Paul has a, has a theme he's driving at here, oneness in Christ. And now, verse 18, there is access to the Father by the Spirit. The Father is forgotten in many evangelical circles today. It's a little odd to talk much about the Father. Thankfully, earlier we sang movingly of the Father and His kindness to us. But in some churches, in some circles, even in academic evangelical circles, you can not hear very much at all about God the Father. There are very, very, very few books written about the doctrine of the Father. There are thousands of books written about Christ, and praise God for that, but there are almost no one-volume books, for example, scholarly terms, about the Father. Bit strange, frankly. Though the Father is not referenced many times here in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, the Father stands in back of all of this, doesn't he? That's what the blood of Christ gives access to, you understand? It's not that when you become a Christian, all you get is Jesus. That's sometimes the way we almost talk and sing, frankly. It's that when you know Jesus through the blood of the Son, by faith in the Spirit, given in the Spirit, you gain access to the Father. And now you have not simply a, an earthly father in some form, but you have a heavenly father. Now, people sometimes in our time portray the father as bloodthirsty and the son as loving. There has been a massive kickback in American culture and Western culture against authority, against authority figures. There's some understandable reasons for that kickback in, in different terms, but then there has also been just massive rebellion against authority in any form. And so God the Father is part of that movement of rebellion. He has been rebelled against, and he has been cast and portrayed as bloodthirsty, and the Son is merciful. The Father is wrathful against sin. 
justly wrathful, perfectly wrathful. But take note, the Father is the one who sets up the entire work of redemption, according to Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. It is the Father's will that brings about the plan of salvation. So the Father is wrathful against sin, but the Father is also the one who sends the Son and pours out his anger against sin, your sin, my sin, at the cross. What I'm saying more simply is that the Father sets up a system of love that meets the terms of his holy justice. So never think, Christian, that the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. Never think that God the Father is really angry and belligerent and scary and God the Son is kind and meek and draws you near to him. Never think this. God the Father is loving and sets up the whole work of redemption, the whole plan of salvation, so that he can love sinners like you and like me in his Son by the Spirit. How desperately do we need to recover a doctrine of biblical fatherhood? Capital F and lowercase f. We need to understand God the Father. And we also, out of the overflow of that, need to understand who God has called fathers to be. Friends, we are effectively in a fatherless society now in many respects, in many corners, in all strata of society. Divorce has ravaged, for example, the, the middle and upper class, just as it has affected the lower class to speak in those terms. Many, many children are not growing up with a father. And that affects how you understand God the Father in profound ways. I would encourage this church to model and promote a culture of fatherhood, godly, biblical, loving, convictional fatherhood. And I would predict for you that if you do so, it will be evangelistic in our time. We have access to the Father, and he is no longer far from us. This leads to our third truth. The church is the household of God. The church is the household of God, verse 19 and following. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him also you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. The result of the work of Christ, his atonement for us, is that we are one household. The blood of Christ washes us clean of all sin. When we have faith in God, we are joined formally to the family, justifying faith. Once we were strangers and aliens, now we are fellow citizens and family members. Note that this is the household of God, and so the Father has brought us into his own family. He has done so through his Son by the Spirit. We have a Father, a heavenly Father, access to him, and so he is not far off, but he is near to all who love Christ. Christ is the cornerstone. Christ is the center of the household of God. In ancient building practices, Harold Honer says, the chief cornerstone was carefully placed. It was crucial because the entire building was lined up with it. Cornerstone doesn't just mean really big stone. It might seem that. Cornerstone means the stone that aligns all the other stones. If your doctrine of Christ, therefore, is out of alignment, if you are believing a different Christ or another Christ, the whole building will be out of alignment. Christ is the one in whom the whole structure joins together. Christ is the one who we align all the house by. We may have nothing in common in terms of background, but we have this, Jesus. So we belong to Christ, but interestingly, we belong to one another. And I mean this objectively. Again, I don't mean this emotionally. I don't mean like, you need to feel this, guys. You need to really feel this. I mean, this is objectively true. 
that you are one family with all who are in Christ. It may actually not feel that way. <laughs> we do a, a fair bit to discourage this truth in its objective state, and yet it is true. Our membership in Christ's body is not first ecclesiological and then soteriological, contra anti right. Our belonging is through the cross alone. Through the cross, we are members of one another. It is only by the blood of Christ that we can belong to God's home. Paul has three metaphors here, actually in this last section, to describe just how much we belong to God. First, we are citizens of God's kingdom, so we are royal subjects under divine rule. We are under military rule of the king, King Jesus. Second, we are members of God's household, verse 19, so a family with a loving father, as I have just been expressing. And then thirdly, verse 21, we're growing into a holy temple. So we ourselves, you yourself, are a living center of worship. You are a center of worship. We together collectively are growing into a holy temple. It's so encouraging to hear this. God is doing this work in you as a believer, and God is doing this work in his whole church. But God is not doing microwavable temple building. God is not doing temple construction in a single day. Uh, some of you watch these HGTV shows. I watch them. I watch more than I ever anticipated I would watch, frankly. I'm in my 15th year of marriage, and there's not a whole lot of content left that we can watch on cable TV, but Food Network and HGTV, baby, we got that. We got those. So I know a lot more about home building than I ever anticipated, and I know that even with a supremely talented flipper, take it from me, okay, uh, it is very hard to build a house in a day. It's hard to build it even in a month. Well, here's the good news for those of us who are growing into a holy temple. This is not supposed to happen in a day. This is not supposed to happen in a month. This is you and me growing over the entire course of our lives. Be encouraged by this. Be encouraged by this with your spouse. Be encouraged by this with your children who are being made disciples, we pray, God willing. Don't expect one-day discipleship. Don't expect one-day Christian marriage success. Go back to Psalm 1. Think of the righteous tree that is planted by streams of living water. Trees, these beautiful trees all around. It's like my native Maine out here in Minnesota. It's great. These trees are not formed in a day or a year or even a decade. You can still have a pretty scraggly tree, can't you? After 10 years, 15 years, it takes 100 years. It takes 50 years, 200 years to build a truly impressive tree. Friends, God is growing you individually and us corporately into a holy temple but adjust your expectations accordingly. It's going to take time. It's going to take the fruits of the Spirit. It's going to take patience and forbearance and dependence on God. Can I say a quick word here? If you and your spouse or you with your children or you with your church members or friends, if you have slipped into microwavable discipleship and you are really frustrated with each other in some form because you have very high expectations for each other, and those expectations are not being met, let me encourage you to go back to this kind of reality. And let me encourage you in those relationships to evaluate this and to think together. Yes, we should confront sin. We should call it out. We should urge one another to holiness. We absolutely should. But we should also address and approach this entire enterprise we call Christianity and the local church, by the way, with patience, with charity, with humility. I think this all grows out of this reality. God is molding us and making us and forming us for his glory. God is working in us. None of this is according to human wisdom. None of it is according to human design. None of it is ultimately dependent on human effort even. All of it is dependent on and driven by God. 
God has done this and God will do this. Not what social media and TV is going to breed into you as a feeling or a conviction right now. You fire up social media, the internet, news, the newspaper, whatever it may be, and many of us feel tremendously discouraged right now. You have to go back to first things. You have to go back to first truths. And you have to know that even amidst all the real chaos and horrible division and brokenness and sin above all, God is doing this. And God will do this. And God is doing this here at Redeemer. Praise God. All right, let's move to some quick applications before we conclude. What does all this entail? I have five thoughts for you as we close. We'll do these rapid fire, all right? First, in applying Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, remember that true unity and true reconciliation come through the cross. True unity, true reconciliation come through the cross. Let's not misunderstand. We can get more or less unity in our society and culture and city We can have more anthropologically, I'm saying outside of the gospel. We want more. We don't want less, I think. We want more. But true unity, true reconciliation, never, ever will come except through the cross. That's it. That's the one plan of God that he has set up by which to bring peace vertically and peace horizontally. Just Fix this in your mind. Don't be led astray by false visions or overly optimistic expectations of unity and reconciliation. This only happens through Christ's shed blood. Faith in it. Second, think regularly about the plan of salvation that the Trinity carries off to save us. Friends, I know the headlines are coming at you. I know the videos of destruction and This city and other cities are hitting you. I understand. There are things to handle there. But I would encourage you in a kind of Edwardsian, Jonathan Edwards sort of way, think far more about God than about the world. There's a very good chance you're thinking too much about the world, honestly. Not because you're some sort of horrible sub-Christian person, but because this is a massive temptation for us all to think a lot about the world. We have to think about the world to some degree, but we need to think more about God. God is the central fact of our lives. God is carrying out a plan of salvation in the Son by the Spirit. That is true. No one can undo it. Third, take delight in your own salvation but recall that yours is also part of a broader salvation. The church is growing into a holy temple. Take delight in your own salvation. But just remember, this isn't just about you getting saved and getting to the new heavens and new earth ultimately. God is saving a lot of people. We heard a baptism testimony, saw a baptism this morning. God is saving. God is working. Take delight in this. Fourth, recall that you're going to need, as a Christian, as the body grows into a holy temple, you're going to need to live with humility, grace, and charity. Humility, grace, and charity. People are going to sin against you. It's going to happen. It will happen here at Redeemer. It will happen at my church in Kansas City, Mission Road Bible Church. It's going to happen. You have to set your face like a flint to live with humility, grace, and charity. Be one who is hard to pry off from the body. Don't be one who super quickly detaches from this congregation or another congregation God would send you to in his good providence. Be a Christian who is hard for Satan to pry away for ungodly reasons. Fifth and finally, take heart that in biblical terms, Justice, a word that is everywhere today, is what 
God does and God will do far more than anything you and I or any human person will do. Justice belongs to God. Are we called to be salt and light while we're here? We surely are, Matthew 5, 17 to 20. We should work for justice where we can, properly defined, biblically defined, but know that God is the one who executes true justice. Don't be led off by utopian visions of justice. Have a Christian vision of justice and know that God is the one who does it. Justice in this world is going to be fleeting and far between, but God will bring true justice. Justice is ultimately cruciform. It comes through the cross. That is where the demands of God's justice are met. So our doctrine of justice is not just vaguely Christian, but is cruciform, Christ-centered, and even more specifically, cross-centered. But remember that the cross is not just a word of love from God the Father to a sinful world. The cross is also a warning. It is a warning. It shows unbelievers what they will drink if Christ does not drink the wrath, the cup of wrath for them. We must preach this in order that sinners would awaken. We need to conclude where we began. So many boys try to get their father's attention, so many girls as well, and they struggle tremendously. But Christian, you don't have to struggle. You have the father's full attention. And not only that, you have the father's adoration because of the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, please shore us up in these truths, anchor us not in ourselves and our fleeting emotions and feelings and thoughts, but in Christ. Father, help us to understand that you are the father that we have sought in different forms but could not find in this world, and you give us the belonging that we will never have in ourselves or in any human institution. Thank you, Father, for your son, and thank you that we can live by the Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.